I'm Greg Dalton, and today on Climate One, we're discussing how human activity is altering our skies and our oceans. The basic physics of the greenhouse gas effect has been studied for nearly 200 years and well understood since the mid-20th century. In the past two decades, it has become increasingly clear that burning fossil fuels is disrupting the Earth's life support system. Scientists say that in our lifetime, we can expect more severe weather, stronger storms, higher seas and temperatures, more searing droughts, and more extreme floods. Our roller coaster ride is just beginning. Over the next hour, we will talk about the state of scientific knowledge about climate disruption. We also will talk about stories of hope and the opportunity of clean energy. Joining our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, we're pleased to have with us two of the country's top scientists. Jane Lubchenco served under President Obama for four years as administrator of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. She's a recipient of the MacArthur Genius Award and currently a professor of marine biology at Oregon State University. Ben Santer is a climate scientist at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. He's also a winner of the MacArthur Genius Award and author of several influential studies on human-caused global warming. Please welcome them to Climate One. Welcome both. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. Uh, Jane Lipchenko, let's begin with you. Uh, I read a story about your first day in Washington. You saw something surprising. Tell us what you saw <laughs> on the first day in Washington. People, and it wasn't Kevin Spacey. It was it was another kind of. Uh, what did you see? Uh, when someone is nominated for a position that has to be Senate confirmed, you don't go into your offices, you don't do anything that would communicate to the Senate, you're taking this confirmation for granted. So I had not been inside the NOAA offices until the actual day I was confirmed and sworn in. I walk in my office, meet the people that are there, start looking around. It's a very large, uh, interesting, big office, uh, nice location. I open up the door to the bathroom, and there is a big Norway rat on the floor, about this big, big tail, and it was wet. And the rat looked at me and jumped, and I kind of jumped. Uh, my staff was just freaking out behind me. They were just fit to be tied. And then this rat ran across the floor, jumped up on my toilet, and dove into the toilet and disappeared. And I thought, well, now, this is going to be an interesting time in Washington, D.C. <laughs> And I won't ask you if you saw other rats during your time in Washington. Uh, but uh, I will ask that your time in Washington did see a lot of extreme and severe weather. Tell us about that period of time. It was quite historic. The four years that I was at NOAA, uh, which, of course, uh, has the National Weather Service as part of NOAA, as well as uh, keeping all the climate records. Uh, and <clears throat> so we know with certainty what all the records are for everything. We saw we had the most extreme four years of weather ever in U.S. history, as far back as the records go for different categories. We had 770 major tornadoes in those four years. We had 70 Atlantic hurricanes, six major floods, three tsunamis, record-breaking snowfall and blizzards, drought, prolonged heat waves, uh, and wildfires every different possible category of extreme weather we had in spades. And another thing that NOAA tracks is the uh, economic consequences of all this extreme weather. Mm -hmm. And typically, uh, in an average year, 
there would be um, on on the order of three to four billion dollars worth of uh, damage from an ex- from extreme events, uh, and. <clears throat> Uh, we, we track the number, I'm sorry, let me say that differently. We track the number of extreme events that cause at least a billion dollars in damage. And normally there would be three to four of those. I, I, I misspoke earlier. And during, uh, 2011, we had, um, a record-breaking 14, at least one billion dollar events. And in, then 2012, we had 11. So in those two years, we had 25 events, extreme weather events that cost at least a billion dollars in damage. So there was a lot of extreme weather that we had to forecast, uh, make sure people knew how to stay out of harm's way. Uh, But I think that that extreme weather actually changed uh, a lot of people's opinions. A lot of uh, people around the country started saying, what the heck is going on? Because it was just so extreme. Ben Center, how do we know, are, are there human fingerprints on this kind of weather? How do we know if that's just Mother Nature's not just slapping us around a little bit? I think the answer is yes, we do know. Um, for many years, people who have been looking at cause and effect relationships primarily were interested in looking at broad brush changes in average climate. But after the European summer heat wave in 2003, the game changed. And scientists asked for the first time, really, um, what can we say about changes in the likelihood of threshold crossing events, like warming of nearly two degrees Celsius over much of southern Europe in the summer of 2003? Um, and borrowing, really, from epidemiology, Uh, scientists began to look at this concept of fractional attributable risk, uh, how human intervention in the climate system changes the likelihoods of those kind of threshold crossing events. And that's now been done not only for the European summer heat wave, but also for droughts, for flooding. Uh, So increasingly, in the kind of work I do, uh, looking at cause and effect relationships in the climate system, people are moving from those broad brush changes in climate to what's now called event attribution, looking at specific events and trying to assess uh, human contribution to changes in the likelihoods of those events. So that's a significant change. Many scientists have said here that, well, we can't connect a dot between climate and Katrina or climate and and Sandy. And you're saying that that, that the, the vanguard of science is saying, yes, we can. Well, the vanguard of science, I think, is 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 looking at how human activities, how human-caused warming of the oceans, the surface, the atmosphere, moistening of the atmosphere, is changing the likelihoods of those kind of threshold-crossing events. And there is recognition that we can now, as scientists, make informed statements on how we're changing those likelihoods. So let's take uh, Superstorm Sandy. What is the human contribution, Jane Lubchenco, to Superstorm Sandy? I think there are a couple of aspects uh, to that question. <clears throat> Much of the damage from Superstorm super storm Sandy, as well as the damage from the recent super typhoon Haiyan, uh, was because of the storm surge. And there is no doubt but that the storm surge was worse because of sea level rise, which is attributable directly to climate change. So 
the impact of the storm was much worse because of climate change creating more sea level rise. Um, the uh, question you were actually asking about was, you know, the size of this superstorm Sandy. It was a uh, thousand miles uh, across. It was a huge, huge storm. Uh, is that attributable to climate change? And <clears throat> I think what Ben has suggested is that um, there is a very active area of science that is the science of attribution. Uh, and I would defer to Ben to answer specifically about Sandy. Yeah, I think we know, again, that we're changing some of the large-scale conditions that influence the, the genesis and the development of typhoons and hurricanes. We know what some of those large-scale conditions are. Um, the the warmth of the ocean surface and the, the mixed layer immediately below the surface, the amount of moisture in the atmosphere, uh, the so-called wind shear at different levels in the atmosphere, all of these and other things uh, can have some significant influence on uh, the development of hurricanes and typhoons. And our best understanding is that at least two of these, um, ocean surface temperatures and the amount of moisture uh, in the atmosphere are being changed by human-caused changes in greenhouse gases. Uh, and they're being changed in a way that would tend to uh, generate more intense hurricanes and typhoons. There's fairly good um, modeling evidence and theoretical evidence suggesting that uh, in response to continued human-caused uh, warming and moistening of the atmosphere, we should expect to see some intensification of hurricanes and typhoons. The jury is still out in terms of changes in the frequency of these events. Other, sorry, if, yes. if I may, um, I think a lot of people uh, have difficulty wrapping their minds around um, some of the language that scientists use to describe events like this. And uh, we're honoring Steve Schneider tonight, and he was one of the champions of trying to find the right analogies to describe things. And he would talk about loading the dice, for example. But I think there's another analogy that's appropriate here in terms of extreme weather events. Uh, and that's an analogy with baseball. Uh, when a baseball player starts taking steroids, there's a much greater chance that he's going to be hitting lots of home runs and some big home runs. Now, that doesn't mean you can point to any particular home run and say, aha, that home run is because he is taking steroids. But the pattern of more and larger uh, is attributable to his taking steroids. And I think by analogy, what we are seeing with some kinds of extreme weather uh, is weather on steroids, weather on climate steroids. We know a thing or two about steroids and ball players here in San Francisco. Um, <laughs> but some scientists have been here and said that the science is very sound on sea level rise. It's very sound on surface temperatures. But you start talking about typhoons and storms, and then it gets a little di dicey, sorry. It gets a little uh, more wobbly there than it is in other places. Is that true, that the science is, I would say, less settled, less clear when it comes to these big storms than it is for temperature and sea level rise? Ben Santer? Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I think in terms of changes in the frequency of these events, that's true. Uh, the jury is still out. We don't have a clear understanding as of today, uh, of whether we will 
see more uh, hurricanes and typhoons in response to human-caused changes in atmospheric composition and warming and moistening of the atmosphere, or we will see uh, fewer of these events. In terms of the intensity, I think there is some um, relatively good understanding, again, both theoretically and from computer models of the climate system and from fairly basic physics, that uh, we should expect to see some small intensification of hurricanes and typhoons. Heat heat waves are one of the most uh, damaging natural uh, disasters. And uh, I think there is um, increasing evidence that the very, very large heat waves that we are seeing, um, you know, we, we, expect there, we expect to be seeing more of those and uh, lasting longer. And I think the attribution for those is stronger. We've also seen uh, the winter of 2013 saw some pretty uh, strong cold periods, uh, people across the country. What do you say to someone who says, it's freezing, global warming, ha! Thanks, Andrew. Well, I tell people uh, that's a phenomenon we climate scientists refer to as winter. (laughs) You know, there there seems to be this incorrect um, expectation that as human-caused burning of fossil fuels has increased levels of carbon dioxide and other heat-trapping greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, that we expect each year to be inexorably warmer than the previous year, and we expect winter to go away. That never was our expectation. Um, we, we know uh, about the, the drivers of the large um, seasonal cycle in Earth's temperature. Uh, we know that there is this rich year-to-year and decade-to-decade natural variability of the climate system, that's not going to go away. That's the backdrop uh, against which we're trying to identify some slowly evolving human-caused warming signal. So uh, as the little video said, signal in the noise. That's what my job is. That's what the job of many of the people in the audience is today, trying to identify some human-caused warming signal embedded in this rich noise of purely natural changes in climate. And one related uh, phenomenon, perhaps, is the pause or the slowdown recently in global warming, which people point to as say, "Eh, scientists can't explain it. It might not be happening. Ben Sander? Sure. Well, I first encountered the pause or the global warming stopped in 1998 uh, narrative when I testified in front of Congress in 2010. One of the witnesses made this claim in his uh, official congressional testimony. Global warming stopped in 1998, no warming of the surface or the lower atmosphere since then, and computer models of the climate system, when run with human-caused changes in greenhouse gases, cannot produce such hiatus or pause periods. There was no scientific evidence to support that assertion whatsoever. It was what I like to call science by eminence of position. Trust me, I'm I'm, uh, a bigwig scientist here. Uh, So we and many others um, in the room and around the world have been looking at this detective story, at this this complex uh, issue of why. Why has there been relatively muted warming of the surface over the last 15 years? It's a fascinating uh, problem. Uh, One of the reasons is this internal variability that I mentioned earlier. Things like El Ninos, La Ninas, 
The beginning of the last 15 years uh, was the 1997 El Nino event. On average, El Ninos tend to warm the planet. So if you start near a high point, uh, a very large warming event, and you end 15 years later with a number of small La Ninas, which on average tend to cool the planet, you're going to get little or no increase over that specific time period. Uh, But the key thing here is we don't look at short periods of time in trying to identify human effects on climate. That would be just as silly as looking at the minute-by-minute record of day trading on the Dow to make inferences about the long-term structural changes in the Dow. You don't do that. In the same way, we beat down that year-to-year noise of natural climate fluctuations by looking at very long changes in climate over decades to centuries. That enables us to more clearly discern uh, what is, is causing the changes. Another thing about the hiatus is that um, we know that there have been a number of small volcanic eruptions uh, in the first 13 years of the 21st century. We didn't know that till 2010. Beautiful paper by Susan Solomon and colleagues in science looked at uh, Mauna Loa observations and saw, wow, the reflection of incoming sunlight at the top of the atmosphere has actually increased because we've had over 17 small volcanic eruptions uh, that have contributed some cooling to the, to the real world over the last 15 years or so. That's part of the answer. Also, the last um, solar cycle, the solar minimum was unusually low and long relative to the two solar cycles uh, preceding. You know, there's an 11-year solar cycle in the sun's energy output. All of these things have made some contribution to the, uh, the pause or hiatus in warming. The key point, though, is that this does not cause us to fundamentally revise our understanding of climate change. Computer models, too, even when run with historical changes in human-caused greenhouse gases, produce such pauses as well, as many people have showed, uh, because of natural climate variability. And again, in the case of the observed hiatus, there seem to be other factors in play, too, not just internal uh, climate noise, but also volcanoes in the sun. Ben Santos, a climate scientist at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Uh, let's talk about oceans. Uh, the Arctic often comes up. Jane Lubchenco, why is the Arctic so important in the overall scheme of understanding and predicting uh, climate disruption? The Arctic is really important uh, because of the role that it plays globally uh, and the fact that it is warming uh, twice as fast as the rest of the planet uh, is really, I think, brings uh, attention to, to its importance. Um, the sea ice uh, in the Arctic uh, has, as everyone knows, been melting at um, a, a rate much faster than was predicted. Uh, and that has a lot of consequences that we are only beginning to understand. Uh, there are some hypotheses, for example, that... Uh, suggest that changes, uh, both the melting of the Arctic and then the changes in reflectivity uh, because the ice is no longer there and the ocean is absorbing more of the heat's energy may have consequences, for example, for the path of the jet stream. Um, there, there are a number of really interesting changes that we're seeing. Uh, we know that the Arctic 
has an influence on the rest of the planet, but we're just beginning to tease out all of the ways in which that's playing out. And why should we care about the jet stream? What does that do for us? Ben Santer? Well, it sort of steers mid-latitude storms, so the location and the strength of the jet stream in our latitudes in wintertime is uh, an important factor in determining um, where storms are. We do care about its location and the things that might act to change its average location. So it could change the temperature in Europe, for example, or change change seasons? Or the could... temperatures here. I mean, the fact that it's we've had this real spate of cold weather, uh, you know, the, the jet stream is much farther south than it typically is. But, you know, it, it does move around. The question is whether that movement is really being impacted by changes in the Arctic. And, and the, the left hook, the famous left hook that Sandy took yep. that surprised people, that, whoa, that storm's not supposed to go there. Uh, could the jet stream have influenced that? So that left-hand turn into New York, New Jersey, was predicted uh, by the scientists uh, at NOAA and in Europe uh, okay. who study that. But it was very atypical behavior for a hurricane. Normally, they would simply curve away from the coastline and go out to the Atlantic. And the fact that it took this sharp left-hand hook was very unusual uh, and that was because there was uh, a blocking pattern. There was a mass of air over Greenland that was uh, that essentially steered it uh, into the land. Another change is the conveyor belt. What do we know about the conveyor belt and how that's changing and, and what the implication is, Jane? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ben? Ben? <laughs> <laughs> this, these, these are Ben's area. <laughs> well, um, Our expectation is that uh, the conveyor belt circulation, this ocean circulation uh, mode that in the Atlantic is responsible for transporting a lot of warm water northward and keeping northern Europe uh, temperate, uh, our expectation is that as we continue to warm the atmosphere and as we continue to have uh, more rainfall at high latitudes, uh, that this circulation will slow down. Uh, That's a fairly robust feature of computer model simulations where you increase greenhouse gases into the 21st century and beyond. Uh, Observationally, sadly, we don't have hard data. (laughs) You know, it'd be nice if I could tell you that we had in place some system to reliably monitor observed changes in the strength of that circulation, particularly in the Atlantic. We don't. We have snapshots, say, over the last... 50, 60 years uh, at individual locations, but not a a clear observational understanding with what's happening there, which um, would would be urgently needed. That would be terrific Mm -hmm. if we had that baseline for understanding what's happening to this very important large-scale ocean circulation. Our best understanding, though, is that um, we're not likely to see some catastrophic collapse in this circulation Uh, as was portrayed in The Day After Tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Although, I mean, we do know that has happened historically uh, and that it is possible. It just, and it's one of these very extreme, uh, abrupt changes that people worry about. Uh, But uh, I think the 
the, the majority of uh, folks who have studied this have concluded it's not likely to happen, at least in this century. And so of all the things that are playing out that we do need to be paying attention to, that's probably not one of them. One ocean impact that is getting a lot of attention is acidification. Mm-hmm. Why is that important? What impact will that have on ecosystems and human food chain? Yeah. Oceans uh, have been actually doing us a major favor uh, by absorbing um, much, not much, uh, about uh, between a third and uh, a, a quarter and a third of the carbon dioxide that we have put into the atmosphere, the oceans have absorbed. And when oceans absorb carbon dioxide, uh, that uh, there's a change in the chemistry of the ocean, uh, and oceans become more acidic. Uh, in the past 250 years, oceans have become almost 30% more acidic, uh, which is actually quite considerable. And we're only beginning to understand the full ramifications of that change. Uh, it is likely to continue to become more uh, and more acidic through time as we continue to pump greenhouse gases, especially carbon dioxide, uh, in the atmosphere, and the oceans continue to absorb it. We do know from various laboratory experiments that some but not all species are very sensitive to changes uh, in pH and the level of acidity. Uh, In particular, those marine plants and animals that have a shell or a skeleton that is made of calcium carbonate and carbonate. And the calcium carbonate, or chalk, uh, is uh, more difficult, the shell is more difficult to make when conditions are more acidic, and it erodes more rapidly. And so things like oysters, mussels, um, clams, uh, but also corals, uh, sea stars, like my sea star, uh, or crabs, lobsters, Many, many different groups of animals in the ocean, but also some very important plants that have shells or skeletons. Uh, if you take these creatures and put them in a laboratory situation uh, that mimics the level of acidity that we expect to happen by mid-century or end of century, uh, many of them show some very significant impacts. Uh, the... Uh, sobering news is that we are already seeing impacts in nature as well, not just in simulated situations in laboratory tanks. Uh, if you go to the Antarctic, for example, there is a very small marine snail called a sea butterfly. It's about the size of a lentil bean. And these uh, small animals make shells. They float in the ocean and the shells uh, are already becoming more, the shells are weakened and they're sort of eroded. Uh, that, that type, that species, not that species, but uh, those sea butterflies in general occur many places in the ocean, and they are very, very important food sources for salmon, for example, and for mackerel. And so not only are they being affected, but there is certainly at least the possibility of some knock-on consequences. Off the coast of Oregon, oysters are another species that have been seriously affected by the increasing acidity in oceans. And for a number of years in a row, 
the oyster hatcheries in Oregon uh, had failure year after year after year. The young were not, they were not able to raise the young. They grow the larvae, the young in tanks, and then create uh, the spat that then oyster growers will outplant. And they were having failures year after year. Uh, scientists working with the oyster hatcheries figured out that the problem was the water was too corrosive. It was too acidic for the larvae, and they were just not able to uh, make a go of it. Uh, they figured out a short-term uh, solution for that because this is in a tank situation, and so you can do something to ameliorate it. But it appears to be a harbinger of uh, things to come with more species uh, reacting negatively to uh, this increasing acidity. Some of the other experiments that have been done in laboratories suggest that some species can cope, for example, baby sea urchins can cope fine with increasing acidity or with increasing temperature, but not both of them. And, of course, in the real world, they're happening together. The one uh, ocean acidification uh, sort of story that a lot of people uh, are very concerned about is has to do with coral reefs. And corals are very, very sensitive in the tropics. Uh, they're very, very sensitive to changes in ocean chemistry, and especially in laboratory conditions, many species of corals uh, are unable to uh, continue to make their skeletons of calcium carbonate, car- carbonate and they are um, the, the predictions that have been made is that by mid-century, uh, ex- uh, sort of growth of corals will uh, cease, and by the end of the century, uh, we won't have active coral. Um, reef formation. So it's actually something that is of great concern because, of course, coral reefs cause this three-dimensional habitat for the rainforests of the sea, all these homes, this uh, wonderful three-dimensional structure for fishes, for all the other marine life that, that live in this structure that they've created. So osteoporosis of the sea is the moniker that some people have given to um, Ocean acidification. I took my then 10-year-old son scuba diving once uh, and in the Bahamas and just realized that he'll be able to talk about the disappearance of that probably in his lifetime. Yep. Uh, but more directly, that impacts the many, many subsistence fishermen uh, in Indonesia and mm-hmm. around the world who rely on the fish that eat that coral and what that means for ecosystems and economies, people who are living close to nature. What are the impacts of that? Uh, that is likely to be a very serious consequence to people, uh, and especially when you think about the fact that uh, between one and three billion people depend on seafood for their primary source of protein, and uh, a large fraction of those are in the developing world. Uh, Indonesia, for example, 60% of Indonesians uh, depend on seafood for their primary source of protein. And a lot of that is um, artisanal fishing, uh, and it's dependent on the reefs. And so there, there may very well be some very serious consequences, not only to that, uh, which in fact is, is, is a real food security issue, but also in terms of livelihoods for tourism. And of course, coral reefs are spectacular places for tourists to visit. 
Jane Luchenko, Jane Luchenko is a former administrator of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. We're talking about climate impacts on oceans and the atmosphere at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, now that we've taken you down deep into the dark ocean, let's talk about the ways out, the solutions, the the, uh, the solutions for this, and some of the the rays of hope uh, that you see for uh, for a different path forward. Let's start with Ben Santer uh, in terms of what the solutions are and what the prospects are for a averting some of these impact we've talked about. People often ask me, uh, how can you go into work in the morning? Aren't you profoundly depressed? You know, you know what the likely outcomes are and where, where are those rays of hope uh, that, uh, that make your life bearable? And for me, uh, one of the answers to that kind of question is that uh, over my lifetime as a climate scientist, I've seen these twin signals. One is this signal in the physical climate system, warming of the ocean, warming of the land surface, warming of the atmosphere. But in tandem with that physical signal, I think there has been a signal in public understanding. We've moved from 20 years ago, uh, we don't really know whether it's warming or not, to warming is unequivocal. We've moved from 20 years ago, we don't really know much about causation here, to most of the observed change over the second half of the 20th century in global mean surface temperature is extremely likely due to human intervention in the climate system. We've, we've moved from um, denying the science to uh, informed discussions on the what to do about it. Uh, that makes me extremely hopeful, actually, that people uh, who never would have listened to me even five years ago, are now willing to give me 30 minutes of their time to listen to the science. Pure, unvarnished account of what we know with confidence, what we don't know, and uh, why they need to care about it. Uh, That makes me hopeful. This makes me hopeful. Climate One. This is uh, a safe place where people with very different perspectives on the science and the solutions can have a discussion on the what to do about it. Uh, it makes me hopeful that we have things like Kyoto, we have things like Copenhagen, we have uh, these meetings where even though nations go in with tremendous differences in national self-interest, they're sitting at the same table. They recognize that this is a serious problem, a credible problem. We need to do something about it. Uh, for all of those reasons, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm not so knowledgeable on the solution side of things, but I do think that, um, as Steve would have put it, this false dichotomy, you can either preserve millions of American jobs or do something about climate change. It's just that, false. The reality is that uh, uh, individuals, companies, countries who figure out cheap Uh, efficient ways of providing low-carbon energy are going to be the leaders of the 21st century. And we have a real choice here in the United States, either to be leaders in that endeavor or to be followers. I hope we're leaders, not followers. Jane Lipchenko, when you went into uh, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, you talked about the green economy. Uh, Did that happen as much as you anticipated, this this hope that that Ben Santer talked about because I, you know, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration is part of the Department of Commerce. I've studied this quite a bit. I can't 
point to one thing or that the Department of Commerce has done in this area. Lots of other parts of the federal government I can point to things. Uh, so let's talk about the, the Obama record there. Um, we've talked a lot about uh, tipping points. And <clears throat> I think that there uh, are tipping points in um, people's behavior and understanding as well as tipping points in the physical system that is the, the, the biophysical system that's the climate mm-hmm. system. Um, things that uh, I think the president uh, has uh, gotten climate. He's very concerned about it. He's long been concerned about it and has wanted to do uh, a lot more than he was able to do with a Congress that just has no appetite for dealing with climate. And so the president has proceeded to do through executive orders and executive actions through the agencies uh, actually a very impressive series of, uh, of achievements uh, the um, standards for uh, uh, appliance efficiency, uh, fuel economy standards. Uh, the agencies are moving ahead with very ambitious plans to reduce their own uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, and on the international front, I think there has been very significant progress made in some surprising arenas. For example, uh, in uh, agreeing uh, or, or putting on the table the need to uh, use to, to limit some of the greenhouse gases that are now allowed under the Montreal Protocol that, in fact, uh, are greenhouse gases and are uh, not only, uh, well, and to, to limit them through the Montreal Protocol. Uh, and uh, these are hydrofluorocarbons, uh, which are allowed uh, but because they are uh, damaging uh, or that they are um, greenhouse gases, uh, it, it is possible to regulate them through the Montreal Protocol. But China and India have not been, uh, until recently, willing to even talk about that. The president uh, and the president of China this summer announced that they, uh, they think this should happen. They talked about it at the G20 meetings uh, the president is having discussions with India uh, on the very same issue. And so that's an international um, activity that, although it hasn't come to completion, is very encouraging and very positive uh, and, in fact, would have a very significant impact. It's in addition to the need to uh, have uh, actions in this country that are regulating carbon, but... Uh, that so I think that whole portfolio of activities uh, has uh, is in fact achieving uh, some very good things. I think there's just the need to do a lot more and a lot faster. And to sort of connect back to the tipping points, the extreme weather that a lot of people are seeing is changing opinions. I think that that's hopeful. Uh, many more people are beginning to see climate not as an economic issue, not as a political issue, but as a moral issue. Not only our obligation to other people in the world, but to future generations and to all of life on Earth. And changing the way we think about the problem, uh, I think, is, is, is part of the solution. So I, like Ben, see some reason for hope. It's just frustrating that we aren't farther along uh, because we see that, that there is real urgency in, in moving ahead with this. Ben Santer? Yeah, if I might add to that briefly, um, in, in 
in my public uh, speaking on climate change, uh, I now uh, preface my talks by showing pictures from uh, mountain ranges around the world. I'm a climber. I've been a climber since I was 18. And over one human lifetime, I've seen profound changes in these fragile high alpine uh, places. Some of the glaciers I stood on in the Alps as a young man are halfway gone. Uh, a couple of years ago, I had the privilege of being at Camp 18 in the middle of the Juneau Icefield. And you stand up there, and climate change is not some academic thing. It's pervasive. You see the signs of change everywhere. To me, uh, in addition to the scientific imperative to understand the human contribution to these changes, there is an important moral and ethical imperative, too, uh, it's profoundly sad that future generations may not experience the coral reefs or these fragile high alpine environments in the same way that we did. And we've experienced these changes over a human lifetime. So putting this moral lens on it, does that mean I'm immoral if I fly an airplane and take a discretionary trip? Uh, does that mean, I'm trying to translate that, because mm -hmm. putting that moral, it's a very high bar, it's very it polarizing in our society. The moral issues, abortion, et cetera, that gets people worked up. It's, I'm right, you're wrong. Uh, so am I immoral for taking a plane ride? So I think that is a, a very great discussion that we need to have collectively. And I think uh, if you, uh, for, you know, for people have gotten into calculating their greenhouse gas footprints and figuring out what they need to do to reduce it. So it's not a single action like a single plane ride. Uh, it's the collective actions. And not only what individuals do, but what corporations do, what cities do, what communities do, and to think about all the different ways to reduce that footprint. Now, one of the things that I really came to appreciate spending four years in Washington, D.C., was the importance of incentives. And there is the moral argument on the one hand, and I think that's a very important one, but there's also uh, incentives for people to change behavior. And what I think we need are, is changing the incentives uh, that will make it more likely for uh, Congress, for example, to deal with uh, the, the, get, to provide the appetite, if you will, to tackle some uh, climate legislation. And that's one thing that uh, Senator Whitehouse has been talking about uh, as uh, a potential benefit of having regulating um, uh, fossil fuel power plants, uh, both the new ones and uh, existing ones under EPA regulations. And he has hypothesized that that has a great likelihood of, in fact, changing the incentive equation for businesses and that they, in turn, would will turn to Congress and say, hey, we need some help here. We need some certainty. We need to get something done. Uh, give us some help. Deal with this. And so changing incentives and having the moral uh, arguments and the moral discussions and seeing it as a moral issue, I think, are part of the portfolio that is very timely. What can an average person do who's thinking about this? Maybe they've changed their light bulbs. Maybe they have a plug-in or a hybrid car. But what can an average person do while we're waiting for Congress to do that? 
Well, many people have done that, and many communities have done that, and in fact, uh, I think that's very encouraging and very positive. We need that to happen not only in California and Oregon and Washington, but across the country. Um, <clears throat> the um, interfaith power and light uh, communities uh, of congregations all around, lots of different faith-based groups are, are tackling this issue in many states on uh, issues that are, are in their own communities. That's something very active. People can work together with like-minded individuals to work uh, on reducing carbon emissions. Be politically active. Uh, pay attention to what uh, your elected representatives do. Um, help school kids understand what's happening. Um, you know, one of the things that also gives me hope is the number of young people that are very concerned about this issue and really want to, to change it. Ben Sander, what can an average person do? Inform yourself about the science. You know, I think that if we uh, are to take smart decisions on the what to do about all of this, we need an informed, scientifically savvy electorate. So I think that's part of the, uh, the valuable role that Climate One fulfills, uh, providing good information not only on the underlying science but also on the what to do about it. And uh, I think that's the best single thing that you can do, uh, really be knowledgeable about these issues. Because ultimately, um, you know, to uh, get back to the wit and wisdom of Harry Potter, there will come a time when we must all decide between what is easy and what is right. Mm -hmm. And we're approaching that time where we have to decide uh, whether we're just going to follow the path of least resistance in terms of emissions of greenhouse gases or whether we're seriously concerned about the kind of world we want to leave behind for our kids and grandkids. Uh, so having some knowledge of the likely outcomes, what is the climatic shape of things to come for sea level, for temperature, for rainfall, for extreme events, for their statistics, their intensity, their frequency? Uh, in the end, that basic knowledge and that interest in the science, I hope, will enable us to, uh, to do what is right, not what is easy. We're talking about climate impacts at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Our guests are Ben Santer, a scientist at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, and Jane Lubchenco, former administrator of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. We're going to now invite your participation. And uh, if you're over on this side of the house, please uh, come over to the microphone, go through those doors back there. Uh, here you can stand up the line uh, forms right there with our producer, uh, Jane Ann. Uh, we welcome your one one part comment or question. I'll help you keeping them brief and on track. And uh, this is often among the, uh, the most lively and dynamic part of our conversation. Don't be shy. Uh, usually the first one gets it rolling. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Great. Thank you for having yet another wonderful Climate One evening. I'm Holly Kaufman. And my question is, it was my understanding that during the recent sequestration budget cuts that we were going to be losing some important weather and climate observation satellites. Could you explain to us the importance of those satellites and what the status is, whether we have them or not? Thank you. Did everyone hear the question? Um, <clears throat> there are a series of satellites uh, that fly uh, that are equipped with either weather and or climate instruments 
that give us information that's invaluable, that allow us to predict the weather as well as uh, track climate change. Um, some of those satellites uh, are operated by NOAA, uh, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Others are operated by NASA uh, and some by some other agencies, but those are the two main players here. Um, when I went to NOAA uh, in beginning of 2009, we had inherited a um, weather satellite program that uh, had been dysfunctional for many, many years. It had real serious management problems because of the way it had been structured. And we, uh, the satellites that are in space now are doing a great job of providing scientific information that allows us to predict the weather. And over 90% of the data that go into the weather models come from satellites. So it's critically important that we have those satellites. Uh, we fixed the management of that program uh, and then had to get the resources from Congress to continue building these weather satellites. Our intention was to have climate instruments on those satellites as well as weather instruments. The program has become more and more expensive through time, and it's been a real challenge to get it funded uh, at all. Uh, I was on the Hill talking to members of Congress about how important these weather satellites were. We'd fixed the management problems. And one member of uh, Congress said to me, Doctor, I don't need your weather satellites. I've got the weather channel. <laughs> and I thought, boy, do I need to take a few steps back and start all over again. Now, if it's that hard to get weather instruments funded and weather satellites funded, it's a lot harder to get instruments, uh, climate instruments on satellites. And the budget cuts have actually created some real havoc with the satellite programs. Uh, and it's delayed them, which increases the likelihood that there will be a period of time where we won't have that coverage uh, and we'll be uh, able to do weather forecasts that are sort of the quality that we had 30, 40 years ago, not the quality that we have today. Uh, and there is real danger that many of the climate instruments uh, are not going to be funded and not going to fly on satellites. And it's an economic issue. Uh, in, in other words, it takes dollars to do it. But the problem began before the shutdown, before the sequestration, but those have exacerbated it. And as we look ahead to stabilizing federal funding, it's really important that we pay attention to funding sources for those climate and weather instruments because they're both incredibly important. Another uh, casualty was the CIA created a, an office on climate that was shut down as one of the, the victims of some budget battles. Uh, let's have our next audience question. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you. My name is Ann Arquit. Um, I have a two-part question. Um, do you think that we're on track to stay within the two degrees centigrade warming that sort of has a political and scientific consensus that that's sort of a safe level for the planet? Uh, and if not what level might we be able to achieve? And the second part of the question is, what are the scariest uh, impacts that are coming out of the IPCC report next year 
that we should be really worried about if we don't make two degrees? Two degrees is a number that countries have agreed to, two degrees Celsius. Uh, ben Center, help us. That's how many? Three and a half Fahrenheit, something? Um, so. 3.6? Thank you. <laughs> yeah, people have struggled with should this idea of defining uh, a level of global mean temperature change beyond which uh, we would risk dangerous anthropogenic interference, as it's called, in the climate system. And we don't really have a good handle on what that number is. Uh, people have come up with a number two. Um, others suggest that it's lower than that, perhaps even one degree um, Celsius relative to the end of the 20th century. Uh, we, we, we don't really understand understand how close we are to some of these tipping points that we discussed a little earlier and at what point we we go over the cliff. So in answer to your question, there are a lot of things that are of concern. Uh, Jane mentioned ocean acidification. That's real. It's happening now. Uh, Already there's concern about that. Uh, The warming of the Arctic, the thawing of permafrost, uh, release of... um, Methane to the atmosphere from uh, high latitudes uh, in the Arctic, uh, that's of concern. Uh, There are uh, concerns, as Greg mentioned, about changes in the ocean circulation in the North Atlantic. Uh, Perhaps Wally Broker said it best, climate is an angry beast and we're poking it with a sharp stick. We don't really know very well where that level of dangerous anthropogenic interference is and are unlikely to do so um, for uh, a number of years. So it's all about risk management. Uh, What level of risk are you prepared to accept uh, for some of these bad things to happen? Um, That's what it boils down to. Greg, could I add to that? Um, I think there are two other issues that are worth flagging about things to be concerned about. One has to do with food, agriculture in particular. Um, And I think that for a long time, folks thought fairly naively that ag was no big deal because planting zones would just move toward the poles and everything would be fine. Uh, But I think there's increasing reason for concern uh, because of droughts, uh, changing precipitations, changing patterns of precipitation. Uh, and heat waves and those uh, wreaking havoc with uh, the food supply, uh, food growing regions. Um, the second area uh, is more in the uh, realm of um, international security uh, issues because of disasters uh, in other parts of the world uh, causing uh, ramifications that uh, have real consequences to Americans, uh, if, if this is an American-centric way of thinking about things. But the Department of Defense has been very, um, very focused on taking climate seriously and seeing it as an issue they have to deal with uh, and preparing for climate change, uh, focus on the Arctic, but focus on increasing disasters around the world uh, civil strife and other humanitarian disasters such as uh, Typhoon uh, Haiyan uh, and other things causing problems that they will then have to deal with. And so seeing it more as a national security issue, and I think there's increasing concern that that's very real. 
let's, uh, we have a long line of questions. Let's try to get through as many of them as we can in the remaining 10 minutes. Welcome to Climate One. Yes. Thanks. Uh, Zeke Hosfather. Uh, in 2007, China surpassed our carbon emissions. In the next year or two, they're going to be double our carbon emissions. At the same time, the U.S. has reduced its emissions, surprisingly, by about 12 percent. How do we help China and India reach the same standard of living that we have without destroying the world in the process? Climate, I, climate justice. Yep. So I think the good news is climate – I mean, uh, China is actually taking this very seriously. Uh, it's an issue that they care about. Uh, and even though they are building power plants, uh, coal-fired power plants, uh, at just a breakneck speed, they are also very concerned about some of the consequences, some of the immediate health consequences with air quality, but it goes beyond that in, in terms of climate. And I think there's increasing awareness by the leadership in the country that, that it's a very real problem, that there, that doesn't mean that there are obvious solutions the uh, the elite is definitely being affected by the, the air pollution. Uh, let's have our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Thanks. Uh, my name is Ashley Cryan, and I'm curious to know what your opinion is on geoengineering um, in relation to climate change and what the potential might be for technology to play a part in some of the solutions. Thanks. Geoengineering. Break the glass. Pull the switch. Ben Santer. Uh, geoengineering has received a lot of attention in the last five or six years the idea being that we can uh, intervene in the climate system, that we can do something to counteract the warming caused by uh, human-induced changes in levels of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Um, To me, uh, speaking personally, uh, that's always seemed a little problematic. We're already engaged in what Roger Revell called a grand geophysical experiment, Uh, And we can't claim ignorance anymore. We know (laughs) that we're no longer innocent bystanders. We know that we've changed the uh, chemistry of the Earth's atmosphere, and we know the likely consequences of those changes. So the idea of um, doing a second intervention to counteract the effects of the first intervention seems a little problematic to me. I remember um, I first encountered this at Lawrence Livermore National Lab Uh, about 15 years ago, Edward Teller um, invited me into his office and wanted to talk about geoengineering. He had the idea that one could inject uh, uh, essentially um, sulfate aerosols into the stratosphere and reflect back some portion of incoming sunlight and uh, counteract human-caused warming. I pointed out that after big volcanic eruptions like Mount Pinatubo in the Philippines in 1991, scientists observed that these aerosol particles formed surfaces on which some interesting chemistry took place that was responsible for the, partly responsible for the depletion of stratospheric ozone. And depleting stratospheric ozone would be a bad outcome. <laughs> That's not something we want to do. So to me, um, as a climate scientist who's spent much of his career trying to understand the first geophysical experiment that we're doing and and recognizing the complexities involved in trying to um, project the outcomes of this first experiment, I would not like to put all of my eggs in the geoengineering basket and say we, we are confident 
that we know enough to find a technical solution. That being said, uh, I do think that it's uh, important to do some of the research now and, and understand uh, if things get really dire, <laughs> uh, if uh, human-caused climate change is, is worse than uh, our current model projections, uh, we have some understanding at least of different intervention strategies and their likely outcomes. And many people around the world are now doing that research. I sure hope we don't have to do it in earnest in the real world. Next question. Welcome to Climate One. Hi. Um, My question is, what do you feel are the top, like, three things we should be pushing our legislators to pass to reduce our carbon emissions? Jane Lubchenco, top three. Um, You know, I think the big one that is on the table or that's off the table that needs to be on the table is uh, some kind of legislation that um, either puts in place a cap-and-trade system or a carbon tax system. Uh, And, you know, but the likelihood of that happening in this Congress is not very great. So that's that's really the biggie. Um, and I think the question is more how do we get to that point where it is something that can be talked about? And how do we, how, how do we uh, change the minds, uh, either change the people or change the minds of the people who are there? And it, it's one or the other. Let's have our uh, – thank you for that question. Let's have our next question in Climate One. Sounds like the biggest problem America has is ignorance in Congress. And I don't think you're going to alleviate that. But as I conjure about, uh, contemplate this situation, it came to mind that uh, money is a major player in this. Why don't we incorporate the drug runners and using bitcoins to finance the research tools that you need to have? And that's not a joke. There's a lot of drug money out there, and it's sitting offshore, and they're using Bitcoin. So why don't we incorporate that and just go around Congress and their ignorance? Cannabis and carbon, Jane. (laughs) I'm not sure I know how to react to that. (laughs) Welcome to San Francisco. Vero, and thank you very much for a, an incredible program. Um, my question is around, you know, we have such an incredible opportunity to influence um, organizations internationally. And my question is, are there equivalent of NOAA organizations around the world, and uh, where are they, and how do we influence them, and how do you interact with them? Um, the federal agency, NOAA, has responsibility for a broad suite of things. Weather, climate, oceans, fisheries, coasts are sort of the, the, the lay of the land. And <clears throat> there are indeed uh, a number of really outstanding uh, agencies in other countries. Uh, NOAA deals directly with a lot of uh, its counterparts, its sister agencies, uh, in the UK, for example, and in Europe, as well as Japan, but also lots of other countries around the world. And they have a lot of, uh, a lot in common that's based on science, uh, and they trade information. So there's a whole community around each of those different issues. It might not be all in a single ministry or agency, but in fact, there is a lot of 
um, active trading of information in a way that benefits everyone. One of the real challenges that I faced when I was at NOAA that is only becoming worse is that there is some suspicion by some members of Congress that anything that's international is bad and that international travel is a boondoggle. And for scientists to go to meetings, to trade information, to stay current, uh, or for the leaders of the agencies to go and meet with their counterparts and talk about, um, let's work on this satellite system together. We'll co-fund it so that we all benefit because satellites are expensive and we'll put our instruments on it and your instruments. We have that kind of deal with a number of other countries. Um, that's not seen, that kind of travel to do that kind of discussion is actually increasingly problematic uh, in this Congress. Right now, the um, administrator of EPA is in China, and she's talking to her Chinese counterparts about these kinds of things, and she is being very strongly criticized by members of the administration. There's actually legislation that has been written that says that she may not travel to other countries until she's visited every single state in the U.S. that's a major coal-producing state, and she has to talk to them first and understand their perspectives before she goes to other countries. So those are some of the international challenges that, as I said, are just becoming more and more um, crazy. Ben Santer, really quickly, we'll get one last question. We've got to wrap it up. Ben, sure. Quickly, um, over my lifetime as a scientist, the sharing of computer model simulation output has changed fundamentally. Twenty years ago, individual computer modeling groups performed some uh, numerical simulations and held on to that simulation output for years. Now, uh, we have the ability, everyone in the room has the ability to interrogate the results from all the world's climate models. It's a fundamental game changer. Essentially, the enterprise of computer modeling of the climate system, the results from those simulations that have been performed by dozens of groups around the world are freely available to anyone, and that's enabled a lot better science. Very quickly. John Barrett, this afternoon at the American Geophysical Union, they had a session on abrupt climate change. Would you explain to the people here what is meant by abrupt climate change and how important is it? Ben Santer, how could things change very quickly? Uh, Abrupt climate change, as I understand it, is uh, something like a sudden change in that conveyor belt circulation that we mentioned in the North Atlantic, an abrupt uh, release of methane to the atmosphere, uh, things that that happen on timescales of years to decades that have consequences for much longer periods of time. We've been talking about disruptions in the Earth's atmosphere and oceans and climate. One at the Commonwealth Club, our guests have been Ben Santer, a scientist at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, and Jane Lubchenco, a distinguished professor of marine biology at Oregon State University and former administrator of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for listening and coming to Climate One today. Thank you.